This episode of Amateur Traveler is sponsored by DK Eyewitness Travel Guides. These colorful guidebooks are filled with great information and are one of my favorite guidebooks. I have 25 of them right here on my bookshelf. Learn more at dk.com. Amateur Traveler, episode 468. Today, the Amateur Traveler talks about UNESCO World Heritage Sites, Jeets, Riyadhs, Kasbahs, and Camels as we go to southern Morocco. Welcome to the Amateur Traveler. I'm your host, Chris Christensen. Today's episode is going to be a little different because we're going to be talking about the second amateur traveler trip, which is a trip to southern Morocco, and I won't be doing it by myself. I'll be sharing the opinions of nine of the other people who went with me on that trip, including a rare appearance by my wife, Joan. So stay tuned, and let's talk Morocco. So today we're going to talk about Southern Morocco and in particular this amateur traveler trip. And this trip started planning a year before. We did this trip in April of 2015, just recently as we're recording this. And nine other people joined my wife and I on this trip, including some friends, uh, her brother and his wife, and then some of the listeners of the show. And it was a great experience. And we'll talk in more detail, but just a quick understanding of our itinerary is we started in Marrakesh, a very thriving and a little chaotic city and then went up into the High Atlas Mountains to stay at Ajit and then went down to the UNESCO World Heritage Site of Ait Ben Hadou and then down to Zagora and then down into the Sahara and then back up towards the coast to the city of Teradont, spent a couple nights at the UNESCO city of Essaouira and then back to Marrakesh. So it was a 10-day trip total and probably one of the big themes was variety. And here's my wife, Joan, explaining that. So what was the biggest surprise? I think one of the biggest surprises was just the variety in the terrain that we found. I was expecting Morocco to be fairly flat and barren, but we found snow-capped mountains an hour outside of Marrakesh and forests and a lot of vegetation in the Sahara so all of those were surprises to me. Including trees, which Including was a surprise. Acacia trees <laughs> yeah. in, the, in the Sahara. And then I was also a surprise that just I think the variety of how different groups of people are living in villages in the mountains or in nomadic tents in the desert and, of course, in large cities as well. And I should say that this isn't a tour that we put together special, but instead we were working with Intrepid Travels and we were doing their South Moroccan Discovery Overview Tour. And if you are interested in that, you can certainly book that. Let them know you came through Amateur Traveler. That will help me in the future. But we started in Marrakesh, as we said, and the tour actually doesn't spend any time in Marrakesh, but some of the people on the tour had a chance to come in a day early and spend some time, especially shopping in the Medina and the old part of town. And Robin Aaron had this to say about shopping in the Medina. You know, another thing that I was surprised by was that as Westerners, typically we have our personal space. People typically 
Uh-huh. aren't overly aggressive from a sales standpoint or from you know, interpersonal <laughs> interactions. And, and people kind of have this bubble around them. And we all get used to that. And when we, we were in the Medina the very first day uh, before the tour started, we were walking around for hours in the Medina. Besides the fact that we were dodging the mopeds and people on bikes that were speeding through these tiny alleyways that were packed with people, the salespeople were super aggressive, right up to the point of following us for five, ten minutes. Oh, yeah. Like, they were like, just like on our backs the whole time. This one guy in particular just followed us everywhere we went. And, and the more we ignored them, it seemed like they didn't get the hint until a few days into the trip, I started just engaging them and just joking with them. And, you know, they're, the phrases they were using weren't necessarily the right phrase to use. And I said, hey, here's what you need to say. And, you know, if you're trying to say this slang term, here's what you say instead. And I would joke with them. And, and what were they saying and what did you correct them to say? I'm curious. They would constantly say, you're welcome, you know, instead oh, okay. of instead of saying, oh, please look at this, they would be saying, you're welcome, like in other languages where that word is the appropriate word. Mm -hmm. So I taught them, and then they would use some slang terms, like they would say, hey, friend, you know, so we taught them how to say, you know, hey, buddy, come look at this, or (laughs) we were just joking with them about what they should be saying to try to engage Westerners, or at least native English speakers. And it was fun, and it was funny, and so we joked around, and it, it made it more pleasant for us. And they really laid off at that point, you know, and and we can continue to walk by without them following us (laughs) along the alleyway. At least at the weekly market, when they followed you, they played tour guide almost. One was following Uh, with with Joan and he would pull up, here's some mint and smell the mint. And (laughs) it was was a little aggressive, but it was somewhat helpful. (laughs) Yeah. And. And I'm not quite sure if they were hoping to get a tip for oh, kind of showing you sure. around. It was not bad. You know, it was kind of interesting. The guy that was our tour for part of that time, he was barefoot, wasn't he? I don't yeah. even know if he was wearing shoes. He was super aggressive, though. Like, yeah. Really in your face. And I think the other vendors were annoyed with him because they were kind of trying to, like, shoo him away, you know? <laughs> <laughs> We mentioned the weekly market there, and the weekly market was one of our first stops as we left Marrakesh, and we headed into the High Atlas Mountains, the snow-capped High Atlas Mountains, which came as a surprise to all of us. And it's quite a difference between Marrakesh and this little village where we found ourselves. And Hugh, who spent a year in Pakistan recently, put it this way. And what was the biggest surprise? Probably the biggest surprise is how much it reminded me, uh, Morocco reminded me of kind of a blend of like, say, the Italian version of a European city and South Asia. Hmm. Uh, It has a very much of a European feel to it, particularly Marrakesh. Mm -hmm. The city is pretty modern, you know, the traffic is relatively civilized, a lot of stuff you see in the West, you know, of course, a lot of tourists and things like that. So that's all pretty Western and pretty European. But then as we got into the smaller villages and things like that, just all the little shops that people would have, you know, just the little stands on the side of the road selling stuff. The dentist behind the curtain. Right, right. You know, and and, people hauling around stuff on donkey carts and that kind of thing. It really reminded me of Pakistan, particularly kind of northern Pakistan, kind of getting up towards the Afghani and Iranian borders. I mean, even ethnically, the people were similar mm-hmm. in how they appeared and that sort of thing. So I was kind of surprised how often Ruth and I would look at each other and say, man, this just looks like Pakistan right now. So I was surprised that it looked more Asian and European than it did African. Interesting. 
after the weekly market, we went to the end of the road, and then some of us got on mules, which also took a lot of our day packs. We were packing for one night, and we hiked up into this mountain village and stayed in a jeet, which is a homestay. And both Jim and Aaron said that this was their favorite part of the trip. What was the highlight of the trip? The community and the mountains. I like that a lot. The, the jeet, okay. Get, with the people and all that. And Aaron, did you have a highlight? Mine was actually similar to Rob's because I really loved just seeing the local people and seeing how people lived and, and learning about their culture. I loved when we stayed up in the mountains at mm-hmm. the, up Jeet. the Jeet. Yeah. I really loved that. I loved when we hiked up to the to the shrine. To the shrine. Actually, what was funny that we noticed at the time was that there were all these European trekkers who were going up on this trail. And it was a real trail. It was rocky. And they had like their big hiking boots and they have their walking sticks their patagonia gear they're really expensive gear <laughs> yeah and they're and then, huffing and puffing the yeah <laughs> it's like a real hike and these women are wearing their head scarves and their long dresses and they're hiking up it like no big deal in their plastic sandals plastic sandals and they've got huge loads that they're carrying along and, and they're moving along a lot better than some of these other hikers well, as one of the ones who was huffing and puffing, I will say there is an advantage to having lived at the altitude. But, <laughs> <laughs> but they're just used to it. I mean, because, Absolutely. you know, they live in steep, a steep area. But I also liked seeing the village there and how they lived. And I thought it was so interesting to see how they would all bake their bread. They had to communally schedule mm-hmm. a time where they come and bake their bread all together. So Every day. Yeah, every day. It's so crazy. I also loved how when we would travel around, you would just see people randomly riding a donkey as their mode of transportation. I love that. Just seeing somebody cruising along on a donkey. Just so different from how we live. (laughs) While some of the group did a hike up to an Islamic shrine with a local guide, the rest of us did a tour of the village with Khalid, who is our guide. As you listen to the call to prayer, which serenaded us on our walk, let me see if I can paint a picture for you. The buildings of the village were either made out of stone or concrete, some of the newer ones, all densely packed together, covering the top of this hill, leaving room below for beautiful orchards of apple trees. We walked past a funeral area. I have no pictures of that for what I hope are obvious reasons, as they prepared to bury a woman from the village who had died just hours before, as is their tradition. There were a few shops and even an internet cafe, The local hammam, or steam bath, also shared wood fire with the bakery where the women could come and bake their bread daily, as we talked about. Before we continue on our journey, let's hear from our sponsor, DK Eyewitness Travel Guides. I'm holding the Eyewitness Travel Guide, the Top 10 Marrakesh. Now, I didn't get to spend as much time in Marrakesh as I wanted, but this is definitely the guide that I would have wanted with me if I hadn't forgotten and left at home. I'm looking at the entry for the Top 10 Things to Do in Jama El Fana, the central square of the Medina, where we had dinner the first night, which I did not know until I read this means Assembly of the Dead. It refers to a time when heads of executed criminals would be displayed here on pikes. It says, although nothing as gruesome is on view today, the square is still populated with some extraordinary sights, such as snake charmers, acrobats, and colorfully costumed water sellers. And then goes on to talk about the top 10 features, the orange juice stalls, the snake charmers, the Café de France, the calèches or horse-drawn carriages, the water sellers, the porters, the tooth pullers, the acrobats, the herbalists, and the fortune tellers. With a little paragraph about each, and of course because this is an eyewitness guide, with pictures that give you some idea of what to expect. If you want your own eyewitness guide, go to... If you want your own DK Eyewitness Guide, go to dk.com. 
The next day, we hiked back down, got in the vans, and headed to Aitben Hadu through, as Drake mentions, a surprisingly green countryside. And what was your biggest surprise? That was how green the country was. Yeah, Once especially again, this year. Yeah. interval thing and depends highly on the rain, so it's not easily replicable for a lot of visitors, but it was amazingly green. There was life everywhere, even in the Sahara. Our next stop was one of my favorites, as well as Rachel's, and it's the UNESCO World Heritage Site of Ait Ben Hadou. One spot that you thought was the prettiest. It's not a medieval town, but that's sort of what it reminded me of. I think it's called Ait, Ait Ben Hadou. Yeah, Ait Ben Hadou. That was definitely the most beautiful spot. It reminded me of, again, like a medieval town in Europe. So it's just sort of like a walled-in city, but Moroccan style with the red walls. And I think it was the granary at top, right? Mm-hmm, right. Yeah, that was the most beautiful thing. I mean, you could tell why movies are filmed there and TV shows are filmed there. It's just absolutely beautiful and surprisingly well-preserved for this town that doesn't seem like it gets a ton of tourists and doesn't get a ton of money. It's surprisingly well-preserved and it doesn't look like it's changed that much at all. My favorite moment? was when we got invited into that woman's home for tea. Mm -hmm. And just to listen to her tell a little bit of her story and hear about her history and just to see the picture of Gladiator up on the wall where normally pictures of the prince and king are, that was really amazing to sort of get that experience. And I think that if you were traveling on your own, you would have really never gotten that experience to be invited into her home and see what it was like to actually live in that city, live in that walled city. So that was my favorite experience was just sitting there on the floor in her living room, her guest room, and just chatting with her and having tea. It seemed very surreal to me that we were in the middle of a UNESCO World Heritage Site, this old town that looked like something out of the movies, as you said, and yet people were living there and this is normal for them. The fact that like tourists come through all the time and she just wasn't even phased by it anymore. As Rachel mentioned, this is a site that has been used in movies, including Gladiator, which is why there was this poster of Russell Crowe up on this woman's guest room, as well as for those of you who are fans of Game of Thrones, you'll see Ait Ben Hudu as the city's Yunkai and Pentos in that particular drama. One of the surprises for me as we visited Ait Ben Hadou, it's a Kasar, K-S-A-R, which is a walled town, and it had six different kasbahs in it, which is sort of a castle or a walled mansion for someone who is rich. And it, this looks like this amazing location, but as we headed south from here towards the Sahara and into the Draa Valley, for instance, half of the buildings that we saw were made of this, what I would call adobe, basically mud brick, which is the construction of Ait Ben Hadou. So this is still today where a lot of people live in buildings like this. This is just probably the best preserved and the best example of them. But we visited both historic kasbahs as we went further south, as well as when we went to one pottery studio, for instance, we cut through the local kazar where people were still living today. They had brought in electric lights and water, but it really looked the same as it did 200 years ago. And the pottery studio we visited was still using the techniques that could have been used hundreds and hundreds of years ago. This part of Morocco has changed less than, for instance, Marrakesh. 
In addition to the pottery studio, we also bought headscarves and learned how to wrap turbans to block out the sandstorms that we expected as it was getting windy as we headed down towards the Sahara. We stocked at a rug merchant's. None of us bought any rugs. Erin had a strategy that she used at the rug merchant. And to understand the story, understand that the difference when we were there between a dollar and a Moroccan dirham was roughly 10 to 1. One thing that we found when we were looking at the rugs um, on the day that we went to the carpet vendor was if you're not serious about buying anything, you lowball them to the point to where they just are not interested in you. And so when they were fairly persistent, Aaron lowballed those two guys to the point to where <laughs> they gave up on her pretty much immediately. Yeah. So. Well, they asked me what I'd be willing to pay for the rug, and I just... It was way less than what they you know, were. They're asking for a hundred dollars, and she offers them. I offered them twenty. Twenty, and they just figured. They're that like, wasn't well, a how much would you be willing to pay? And I said I'd be willing to pay two hundred, and they're like, no. <laughs> I was like, that's that's really honestly what I'm willing to pay, you know. Joan managed to actually offend a vendor in Essaouira when she was trying to buy pillow covers. He said 20 and she said 10 and he said now they're 30 or something that the price went away. <laughs> and it was funny because she was a little offended by it. And I said, you know, you realize you were debating whether you were going to pay $2 for them or $3 for them. Yeah, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah that's true. <laughs> We spent the next night in Zagora, which is the center for the Moroccan film industry. We did see one small film museum. It was okay. We saw the famous sign that's 52 days journey to Timbuktu. This is where the caravans would head out across the desert down to Timbuktu. Now, if you do it by 4x4, you can get there in six days. But I understand there's still a fair amount of monotony on the way in between. We also visited Project Handicap Horizon, which is a local organization that Intrepid sponsors. And Intrepid always tries to work with local groups to make the situation on the ground better. And and this particular organization was doing a lot of occupational therapy and, and teaching people how to make some handicrafts so that they could make a living. But our next stop was what a lot of people had been looking forward to. We were going to do a camel ride for an hour, and then we were going to head out into the Sahara on 4x4s. But as with all travel, sometimes travel has surprises. What was your highlight? I think my highlight was a thunderstorm in the Sahara. It's going to be a difficult thing to replicate for a lot of people who went. But as far as experiences go, that one will stick with me for a very long time. Yeah, I was disappointed that it cut the camel ride short. But on the other hand, I was not disappointed that they cut the camel ride short as we're standing up there on tall camels in a thunderstorm. (laughs) And wet camel after not being able to shower for the next two days and spending it all in four by fours and close confines. I think... Some people may have been glad that the wet camel ride got cut short. (laughs) (laughs) So we found ourselves huddling in a mud-roofed building, which apparently dissolves in a strong rain, as it was making puddles of mud on the carpets in this building and waiting to see if the rain would let up. It never let up enough for us to get out on the camels. And this hadn't been a planned stop, and so our camel drivers were not prepared to host us, but they made some tea for us, and we think perhaps they didn't boil the water enough because some people did get sick after this part of the trip. But while the rain was unexpected, it was also for some people the highlight. Here's what Lib had to say. What was the highlight of the trip? Honestly, it was being out in the desert in the rain. That was so amazing and unexpected, and the lushness of the plants, it was just really magical. Of course, there were some downsides of the rain, as Rob explains. Biggest surprise? One of the surprises for me was that those tents in the Sahara could be so stinky. (laughs) (laughs) Smell of wet sheep. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, growing up camping and, you know, being able to rough it and, and you know, and, and experiencing the outdoors is fine, but the smell of, I don't know if that was, there was camel hair or the canvas, but the rain in the Sahara was a surprise, which cut short our camel ride, and it also made the tent that we slept in, for me, somewhat difficult to sleep just from the, the odor. So that was interesting, a surprise. You know, I talked to somebody who went the following week when they didn't have the wet weather, and I said something, and I saw pictures of their tent, and they looked the same, and I said, and did they stink? And they were like, no. <laughs> so it, yeah. it seemed to be some combination of wet wool material yeah. and tents. It's like the, the wool rugs yeah. that wet or something. Yeah. I don't know. I think that they really missed out. Those people missed out on a lot of the experience because they didn't <laughs> they didn't smell that. So. <laughs> But even with stinky tents and cloud cover that kept us from seeing the stars that night, climbing dunes that went on for 10 kilometers still was a memorable experience. Rachel had this to say. What was the most memorable part for you? What was the highlight? The highlight was definitely the Sahara. I think beforehand, it's sort of the thing that you can imagine the most. I mean, yeah, you think that Marrakesh might be like this. This is what like a coastal town might be like in Morocco. Mm -hmm. But you really have a good idea of what sand dunes look like. But to see them in person and just to see endless sand dunes forever and to also see how similar the Sahara was to like the desert here in America. So there are parts of it that look like Monument Valley and parts of right. it that look like Death Valley. Sahara was just absolutely beautiful and just fun to walk around and climb the sand dunes. You could do that. It looked like you could do it forever. Just keep walking and walking. And Hugh added this. What was the highlight of the trip for you? I think it's probably the touring around in the Sahara. I kind of like natural nature kind of settings. And of course, it's something very different than we typically come across here. We have sand dunes in North America, but nothing like with people living in them and, <laughs> and camels and stuff like that. So it's just a very cool natural setting that felt very African-like. So that, that was kind of fun. You're climbing around in the dunes and seeing the camels, even though they're tourist camels, and just, you know, bombing across the the wilderness there and the four-wheel drive trucks and stuff. Yeah, that was kind of fun. And Hugh mentioned bombing across the desert in 4x4s. We spent several hours in the 4x4s, both driving out to the Sahara camp as well as then getting back to the road. As the drivers played their local music, we would drive across all sorts of different terrain. We'd drive, as Rachel said, through portions that looked like Monument Valley, some places that looked like the surface of Mars, some places that looked like African savanna with acacia trees, and some other places with great big tall sand dunes. That's actually the most rare of the types of desert that are in Morocco. And then at one point, while we were near some acacia trees and goats, we ran across a family of nomads who were living out of the tent, and Khalid stopped and asked permission for us to visit them and go inside their tent. Khalid himself had grown up in a tent like this, except in the high mountain area of northern Morocco. We haven't talked much about Khalid, but this is a good time to hear Rob and Aaron talking about the experience that a really good guide makes for a trip like this. What was your highlight? My highlight was really the interactions with the local guides and with Khalid mm -hmm. uh, to hear about their life and their backgrounds and kind of where they came from and hearing about their tribal culture, hearing about how they did weddings and the protocols for interactions between teenage boys and girls and 
and um, which is hearing about none. <laughs> no interaction it's <laughs> very, very secretive well when right. he talked about how they would like sing the songs back and forth to each other i don't know if you were involved in that conversation but he said in those mountain villages if there was a girl that you were interested in you would kind of be walking by and you would sing a song it was symbolic so they'd seen some kind of song that represented that he was interested in her hmm. And if she sang back the tune that had meaning, then he knew that she was interested. And so they couldn't talk, they couldn't have interactions, they couldn't touch, but they would kind of hit on each other via song while, while they were doing their work. You know, while the boys were out with the sheep and the girls were working in the fields or, or doing something else. When we did the hike up the mountain as well, we went with a local guide and he mm-hmm. was about you know, 21 years old and he was very outgoing, personable, smiley, you know, good looking kid. And we visited with him and he told us a lot about mountain life and how they really enjoyed the interactions with the tourists. And that's where most of the economy came from. And, you know, it was really cool just to hear about their daily lives, about their families and their tribes. Also related to the nomads, we were able to go Uh sit down in their tent and talk to them. Very, very similar. I mean, the fact that those nomads had never heard of America. Had never heard of America? I missed that. Yeah, so so they had never heard of America. Khalid, when he was talking to them and, and we were talking back and forth through him, he said, yeah, they're from America. And she, it was the woman, she kind of had a blank look on her face. And he had told us about this the night prior, about how his father didn't know where Turkey was. Because he was telling his father he was traveling to Turkey. His had, dad had no idea where it was. And he said, oh, it's kind of the direction of Mecca. And his dad was so disappointed that he was not going to Mecca and he was going to Turkey instead. And so Khalid, obviously, he knew how to deal with it. And he had said to the lady, oh, it's it's across the ocean. And she said, well, I, I know the ocean. And, and that was the end of the conversation. So she had never heard of America. But, yeah, but he was talking about that with his dad, too, that they just had no concept of Huh. another country of another place besides where they live and other cultures they couldn't even they couldn't even wrap their brains around so huh. it's interesting that these people lived so remotely and a lot of the discussion with him and with other peoples was centered around the fact that they were illiterate the lack of education uh-huh. they just the global perspective was very minimal but it was interesting for us to see as outsiders to see that they kind of lived these kind of happy lives surrounded by their local community and their tribe and their family. And they just, they did their thing and they just lived life. And one thing that Rob and Aaron didn't mention is that when Khalid is home with his home village in between tours, for instance, he will sometimes head up there if he has time. He will volunteer to help, especially some of the older women or older men, learn to read. It would be classic Arabic, and the main reason would be so they could read the Quran. But these are the sort of things you talk about as you're on long drives, and this is a trip that did involve getting from place to place, and we really couldn't figure out how you could see all that we saw without some long drives in between, but we had days that we would be in a van for six hours, but Joan had an interesting perspective on that. And what was your highlight? There were many highlights just in the way that Intrepid runs their tours. We had really long days, some days where we had a lot of driving to do, but we didn't just sit in the van all day. We would make stops and our guide did such a great job of finding 
interesting things for us to do along the way. It might be stopping to visit with someone who grows saffron and find out how it's grown and get a demonstration of how he harvests the crop and then go into his store while he made us some saffron tea and we had the opportunity to buy some saffron or whether it was to stop and see the goats climbing in the trees and eating the nuts. <laughs> they really did such an excellent job of having a lot going on every day, even though on the itinerary it may have just looked like four hours of driving. It didn't turn out to be that way. Two of Chandra's highlights actually were those little stops that Joan referenced there. And Chandra, what was your highlight? The library at oh, interesting. at Temagruth. Okay. The Library of Ancient Islamic Texts. Yeah, that were so close that you could, I mean, I've never been that close to books that old. I mean, you literally could just lift the cover and touch them. That was, on the one hand, terrifying. Just <laughs> yeah, having the British Library just down the road and having seen sort of similar objects and what the kind of conservation that they do to be able to put those on display and then to see those, you know, I think that that made my little heart weep a little bit. But at the same time, to be that close to that kind of history was absolutely incredible. And certainly among the stops that were some of my favorites were seeing the city wall of Teradont or visiting the two different markets there, which are more traditional markets, much less touristy, not a touristy city at all. Or as Joan said, visiting the Argon trees, which was new to me, and seeing the quote-unquote flying goats of Morocco that climb the trees in search of nuts. But I was surprised how many people did mention the little saffron shop that we stopped at. The saffron. Yeah, the, saffron. the saffron, exactly. Oh my gosh, that smell. <laughs> I think that smell may be my highlight, actually. Just because it has the strongest memory? Yeah, but then again, smell is a very strong sense for me anyway, so... And then I was surprised that no one else mentioned the city of Essaouira as their highlight because that probably was my favorite stop on the whole trip. It was two nights there. Now, partially one of the reasons would we had at least three people, uh, Joan and Jim and Lib, all sick by that point, and then Rob got sick in the city, as you will hear later on. And so that took some of the joy out of that city for them. But it was a city with a little more variety in food, where really good shopping. We managed to pick up quite a few things there leather goods, wooden products, textiles, a number of different things in the shopping. And then it's this beautiful walled city, this historic city that goes back to the Romans and the Phoenicians and the Portuguese, and then obviously the Moroccans. And it is also a UNESCO World Heritage Site and has also been used in movies and TV, including also Game of Thrones, where it plays the part of the city of Astapor. And one of my surprising moments there was I went down to the port. There's a fishing village there and and all sorts of little fishing boats that go out for sometimes days at a time to do fishing along the coast there of Morocco. The weather had been rough the night before, and so some of the long line boats had not gone out. And one of the fishermen just started giving me a tour of the port in both English and French. We managed to get by, and I had a half-hour personalized tour of the port, for which he did expect a tip, but that was entirely in order. And I now know much more about Moroccan fishing than I ever thought I would know, and I'll try and put that in a blog post someday. But I thoroughly enjoyed the city of Essaouira. As you heard, some things did go wrong, and I wanted to give everybody on the trip a chance to talk about one warning they would give or what they wish they had known before they went. And these are the sort of things that we would tell you before you go to Morocco. 
What do you wish you had known? I think I wish I had known that there's as much English spoken as there is, especially in the tourist areas, of course, and that if you know a bit of French, you can actually get by quite well. It seemed to me even more so French than English in some of the places where we were. Well, definitely French is the second language after Arabic. So um, there's quite a lot of French and the signs are all in Arabic and French. So yeah, if you knew some French, you could do pretty well. One warning you would give. Personal space is a relative concept. (laughs) (laughs) Even when we were in like the market. The weekly market? Yeah, the weekly market. Or even just walking around. Did you not appreciate your your personal travel guide that was guiding you through the weekly market? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I didn't have so much of that. I mean, I didn't feel bothered like I think some other people on the trip did. I I never felt accosted like Mm -hmm. I have in some other places I've been. I never feared for my personal safety, but I mean, people stand very close to you and Mm -hmm. people will brush past you. And I think that if you live in a Western country, it's we're used to much more personal space. I mean, unless it's the Northern line during rush hour, you're used to much more personal space than what they exist with on a day-to-day basis. I think the other warning I might give is that you won't get to speak to very many women And I Mm. think that that's one of the things that as I reflect back on the trip, the dominant story we were being told was almost, almost entirely from a male perspective. And that's fine. That's a valid story. But I wish I could have interacted with more women without the need of going through a translator. Right. You know, to be able to interact with them directly and Mm -hmm. one-on-one, maybe in an all-female setting, if that would have been working. But I, I missed hearing their side of the story a little bit. One warning you would give. Go ahead and be prepared for five dishes and five dishes only to be presented to you for every lunch and every dinner the whole time you're there. Three kinds of tangine and two kinds of skewers. Lib's statement of five dishes and five dishes only was only a little bit of an exaggeration, and Chandra expands on it here. And what was your biggest surprise? I think my biggest surprise is that we didn't eat that many different kinds of food. I was expecting Moroccan <laughs> cuisine, and I loved it. I mean, I absolutely mm-hmm. loved everything that we ate, but it really is, you know, and I don't know how much of that was eating in restaurants and sort of restaurant cuisine being a little bit repetitive kind of no matter where you go. But it, it did surprise me that we didn't come across more variation in the cuisine than we did. I enjoyed every tagine I had. But I was ready for a pizza by about seven days. Okay, I've had a tagine. I know what they are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or, you know, the kebabs, which were great. I enjoyed right, every exactly. kebab I've had. But, you know, there's only so many different variations on kebab. We should say that just because there was always a lemon chicken tagine on the menu doesn't mean that it was always the same every place. But there was still almost always, it seemed, especially when we were in the South, almost always the same dishes on the menu. I think that was one of the reasons why it worked for me to have Esuera at the end, which is a touristy area, and there was more seafood, there were more pizzas, there was just more variety of food available in that area. One thing you wish you had known before you went? I mean, I think this is specific to me as a female traveler alone. It wasn't so much in the smaller cities, but in Marrakesh, there was definitely a lot of men who were sort of aggressive and would come up to me and try and talk to me and ask me to come with them or go home with them. And I wasn't prepared for that as much. Oh my. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> and so I had to put my mean face on. It definitely wasn't like a ton of people. It didn't ruin the experience for me. I absolutely love Morocco and go back in a heartbeat. But I would say I experienced that more than I did, say, when I went to like Europe or South America. I mean, a little bit similar to like when I went to Mexico City, but the men were just definitely very aggressive and in your face. And I think it was, again, just because I was a female traveling by myself and I definitely looked like a Westerner, I would say that was something to just be prepared for. Just know that that's going to happen and not to worry about it. They're not going to hurt you. No one's going to really be super physically aggressive or anything like that. You just need to be a little bit on your guard. What's one warning you would give? Well, mine was put a damper on the end of the trip. Don't drink the sugar cane juice from the street vendors. That left me with a little uh, discomfort for the last couple of days. And the flight home I was a little nervous about, but we ended up being okay. But street food often is okay. I would say that probably on the bottom of the list of things I should have tried. So Now, as I recall that story, it was I tasted the sugar cane juice and it tasted off, so I kept drinking it. Wasn't that what the way the story was told? (laughs) Well, well, the backstory was we had rented bikes. And that day it was relatively warm and we'd already biked for a while. Aaron had gone back to the Riyadh and I kept riding around and I was getting kind of thirsty. And I'm like, I just need a small drink because I don't necessarily want to buy a water bottle and have to tote it around with me. I had no Mm -hmm. way to carry it. So I stopped at the street vendor. He pulls out the grimy sugar cane and runs it through the press. And I remember thinking at the time, man, that doesn't look very clean. And so he puts it in the cup. And this is where the whole sense of skewed value. I thought it was going to be 10 and he charges me 20 which is $2. And I'm like, oh, man, he charged me double what I thought. So I took a sip and I'm like, that's kind of funky. And then, I, and then I kept riding along. I hadn't thrown it away, and I stopped and drank about half of it before I ditched it. But yeah, that was you're right. There was some substantial bad judgment at that point. <laughs> it is funny because we walked by the sugarcane vendor earlier, and I remember thinking, "Oh, that doesn't look good." You know, like, <laughs> that looks really sketchy. Like his fingernails are really dirty, and you can see the dirt on the sugarcane and everything about it that just looked bad. You know, <laughs> one warning you would give. Be prepared for an African travel experience. Okay. Whether that means for you being careful with the food or bringing along your Cipro or (laughs) knowing how to operate a squat toilet. All of those things, if you are prepared for them, will make it much, much easier to enjoy Morocco. And if you're not, will make it very difficult to enjoy Morocco, I think. And one warning you would give, one thing that people should know before they go. Well, in some respects, none. It, it seemed it was a pretty easy place to travel. There's a lot of English. The food was easy to order and buy. The transportation works. So it's, it's not a place I would really worry about going. And of course, the classic thing about going to the developing area, you know, don't drink the water. Um, <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, that's true for, what, maybe two-thirds of the world or something? Right, sure. We were really comfortable there. I didn't come back and say, oh, you really watch out for this. I, I don't really have any warnings to pass along. That was a lot of fun. I've wanted to see Africa. Now, granted, this is one corner of Africa, so it's quite different than you know what you see in National sure, Geographic yeah. kind of shows about Africa. But it was kind of cool to see another part of the world. And one thing that really struck me is how much the Moroccans there that we interacted with emphasized that they do Islam different than the more militant areas. They were really, really trying to get that message across. You know, we're a safe Muslim country, not like those other ones. 
And I definitely felt that it didn't have kind of the oppressive feel that some other places I've been. So that kind of struck me as another thing that was sort of surprising. And then because Rachel was the first one I talked to, Rachel gets to answer the question of how would you summarize Morocco in just three words? Definitely beautiful. Mm-hmm. Very welcoming. Okay. And diverse. Each mm-hmm. city was a totally different experience. Even though it was all sort of like in a, a few hours away from each other, each city was totally different from the previous city we visited. So definitely diverse. And I'm going to give Rob and Aaron the penultimate word on this show. I would wholeheartedly endorse, if anybody's interested in a similar trip, I would say that was a great value for the experience. We travel quite yeah. a bit, and to spend that much money to get a 10-day tour, to get so much in Included so much hands-on and direct interactions with locals and a, and a really a good education. We thought that was really a great value, and, and we really enjoyed it. Yeah, and looking back, I was trying to think of one specific highlight, but there wasn't. I mean, every day it was something new, and I was learning so much, and and very different from the different prior things. days. Yeah, everything was different every day, and uh-huh. it was really. I thought it was a really good experience. Really enjoyed it. And the group was nice as well. You know, sometimes yeah. you could you could get a group yeah. that could be difficult, and this group was very laid back, and we, we really thought that the group was great, that the trip was great. You know, we'd be interested in uh, some of the other trips that are going to be yeah. coordinated by the amateur traveler. So. Yes. Um, cool. Well, I didn't even pay them to say <laughs> that. <laughs> the two things that I want to really agree with Rob and Aaron on there are, one, that the group was really one of the things that made this so fun for me. So thanks to Rob and Aaron and Hugh and Ruth and Rachel and Jim and Lib and Joan and Drake and Chandra. It was, it was a fun trip, but we're sorry that the rest of you missed it, but we are planning on doing trips in the future. And if you go to the Amateur Traveler Trips private Facebook group, ask for permission, we'll let you in. That's where we're going to be discussing where we go next for Amateur Traveler. If you're interested in doing this particular trip, I actually have a discount code that is good for one month after the show comes out. So this discount code is good until June 23rd of 2015. And the discount code will save you 10% off of this particular tour. And the code is 11991. If you happen to be listening to this later than one month, send me an email and maybe I can get you another discount code. Depends on how much interest we get. And if you didn't listen to the show in time, but you were a subscriber at the time that this came out, then it's time to subscribe to the email newsletter because I'm going to put this information in the newsletter and you would have gotten it if you subscribed to the newsletter. You can do both of those at the website, amateurtraveler.com. With that, we're going to end this episode of The Amateur Traveler. This has been a little more work to put this one together, but I hope you check out some of the photos that we have from Morocco, some of the pictures of the group, and some of the pictures of the wonderful, wonderful landscapes that we saw. If you have a question, send an email to host at amateurtraveler.com, or better yet, leave a comment on this episode at amateurtraveler.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, Pinterest, or Instagram at Chris2x. The transcript of the show will go up in about a month and is sponsored by J-Way Travel, experts in Eastern European travel. I did also want to send congratulations to my son and his co-host Jay, who just finished their first year with their podcast, Because Comics. If you're looking for a good comics podcast, it's my favorite. And as always, thanks so much for listening. I got to see one more
cathedral I got to sit in one more